to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. All right, Mick, so today we've got a guest for Soil Talk, Pat McNaught with uh, Orthman Manufacturing. So Pat, introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us a little bit about you and, and Orthman. Uh, so I'm a regional territory manager for Orthman Manufacturing. Um, in essence, uh, Bit of a go-between, if you will, between the manufacturer, us, Orthman Manufacturing, and our dealerships that uh, sell and service and support our products. Uh, I travel a seven-state region, uh, including parts of Kansas, Nebraska, um, Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, and uh, <laughs> North Dakota and South Dakota. So cover a pretty uh, broad range. Um, most of my time in the spring, summer, and fall is... is uh, consumed by uh, field settings of equipment and assisting our growers and our dealers in supporting that equipment and then also implementing sales and service programs. And and so that's kind of a general gist of what I do. I drive a lot. <laughs> so Mick, you've got some experience with Orthman equipment. Tell us a little bit about that. So this past winter, we worked with Orthman and, and decided that we'd make a shift in our equipment that we were using in our research plots. Uh, the, due to the size of equipment we need to transport, we, I always say my team is the only farmer in the United States that farms 100 acres, and it's in 25-acre chunks that are 100 miles apart. So logistic-wise, we needed something that we could transport a little more efficiently than what we were doing. Uh, driving a tractor down the road with a 14-foot-wide piece of equipment does not work. Uh, not when you got to go 100 miles. Not when you got to go 100 miles. So we worked with Orthman. We actually uh, used their their one tripper with a which is a smaller system than what we were using uh, in order to place our fertility trials, and it did a phenomenal job. And in fact, we're planning on doing some different things this fall, weather permitting, where we utilize that to break some hard pans that we have in our research sites that we're working with right now. So uh, generally we have the four locations, three of the four have a hard pan at that six to eight inch depth zone. And I think that we can take that one tripper and get rid of that hard pan, at least make a, a better environment for the roots and improve some yields. Yeah. So Pat, tell us a little bit about what the one tripper does. Well, and in, in regards to, to your last comments, Mick, and, uh, and compaction, um, we have our own uh, research department and agronomy department, and compaction is something that we've studied pretty deeply, pardon the pun, <laughs> <laughs> over the last couple of years. And, and uh, it's the ugly animal that nobody ever sees um, and doesn't pay attention to until it's too late. Um, over the last few years, there's been some interesting data that has come out of the industry that uh, uh, specifically talks about um, the adverse effect on, on corn, uh, primarily in its early stages of growth. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head where it came from, but there's a lot of data out there that, that suggests that uh, as the seedling erupts, it has about 40 pounds per square inch 
of push to get itself through the soil. And if you've got a compaction layer down there that we have measured multiple times, both vertically and horizontally in the three to four to 500 PSI range, kind of shot yourself in the foot before you even started out. Um, some of that's environmentally installed, a lot of it's mechanically installed. And so what can we do about it? What can we, uh, how can we mitigate it? Uh, another common misconception is that freeze and thaw is gonna take care of it. And there's a lot of data out there uh, regarding that. The National Soils uh, Tillage, excuse me, the National Tillage Soils Dynamics Lab published a study a few years ago that stated it would require 14 freeze and thaw cycles in one winter to fracture compaction down below a foot. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it doesn't happen in Minnesota, <laughs> it doesn't happen here. Yeah. So that's, that's a common problem that we see in, and uh, one that doesn't often get addressed um, or gets addressed in an incorrect fashion or gets addressed and then a, in a subsequent, subsequent pass gets reinstalled. And so that's one of the primary objectives of, uh, of strip tillage with our tool is, is to uh, eliminate that root zone density and allow that early plant to flourish. And so, so is the one tripper normally used on its own or is it normally used in conjunction with fertilizer application or is it both? One man's opinion is if you're gonna strip till and you don't put on fertility, um, that's a colossal waste of effort and time. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there are, there are growers out there that strip till uh, and just strip till, um, but you're making the pass through the field uh, why not up your fertilizer efficiency game at, at the same point? And you, and you guys can speak more to that than I can. Um, but we all know and recognize that we can put fertility in the path of the roots where we're going we're gonna to win most of the time. So there are a few uh, that strip till in answer to your question without fertility, but uh, it's definitely something that we don't recommend. Uh, we'd, we'd sure like to see our customers uh, to to utilize that capability since they're going to make the pass anyway. And truthfully, we take the take the position throughout our line of equipment, whether it's strip-till, cultivators, whatever. If you're going to make a pass over the field, put something on while you're doing it. Mick, what are your thoughts on that efficiency gain from strip-tilling? You know, uh, I'm not a big fan of, of playing an efficiency gain because we're still removing the same amount of nutrients with a bushel of corn. Right. Uh, there are some efficiencies that we gain over broadcast spreading. Um, how big they are, I, I haven't done enough research to figure that one out yet, but uh, there are some efficiencies that are gained. Uh, mainly get it from root pro proliferation more than anything. Uh, if we proliferate the roots, we're exploring more soil areas, so is it benefiting from exploring more soil area, or is it benefiting from the nutrients that we put there. It's hard to, hard to say at this point in time. It does seem like that root proliferation in those areas, especially if you've got a little nitrogen, a little phosphorus, seems to do pretty well at, at an efficient grab of those nutrients. But I'm with you. You know, if a guy wants to drop his recommendation a little bit because he's doing strip till, um, you know, something like a 20 or 30% number makes sense to me until I get to a place where I'm below where I want to be and I'm removing more in the crop than what we're applying because you're still got a net negative there. So I'm with you that that doesn't make much sense to right. me. Right. We still need to apply what we're removing with the, with the crop at, at minimum. 
unless we're at a place where we're intending to mine, but that, right. the soil test can tell us that. Exactly. Just, just because you're using a strip-till machine doesn't mean you should automatically start mining. Correct. Uh, you know, I've, Pat had mentioned that uh, about breaking up that hard pan, and, and certainly we saw that when we filmed some videos earlier this year in, back in August. Uh, we dug a root pit, and, and we got to see what happened where we had strip till versus what we didn't, where we didn't. And certainly, that was an eye-opening experience for both of us. It really was. So we had Mike Peterson, who's uh, Orthman's is a soils agronomist, um, there with us working in that root pit. And Pat, you dug it for us, so it was really a great experience. So our listeners could go to www.cvacoop.com backslash ACS event and they could look at that uh, soil pit and see kind of what we're talking about because we spent quite a bit of time in that pit looking at root channels, old root channels, looking at the the way we fractured the soil with that one tripper, looking at how the nutrients went out and and the root proliferation around there. The amazing thing was the depth of some of those worm channels that we saw and even worms that we saw three, four feet deep. You know, we normally think of all those worms in that top six inches or foot and there they were four foot deep. Tim, to me, the most amazing thing is that you came out of the hole before I filled it in. <laughs> That's because they wouldn't give neither of us a shovel back. <laughs> Rip pits are something that we do quite often, and then there's always a story to tell, and there's always a different story to tell depending on where you're at, soil types, uh, history of the farm, um, but always interesting. And there's a lot of information that... that uh, that we don't pay attention to that's that sits below the soil surface and uh, some of that just cannot be discovered without digging a hole and so we look forward to continuing to do that uh, like i said we do i believe we've done somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1700 holes in the last 12 years um root pit digs and um, everyone's different and and they're uh, i would encourage customers uh, of yours or ours you ever get a chance, dig a hole. You'll you'll see interesting stuff. You can really see those changes in the organic matter content of the soil, especially as you look down through there. And and we saw some interesting things with some of those soils and how the the different layers were moving between them when we were in there with Mike looking at it. He he brings so much knowledge to that. Yeah, it it also gives you a window of uh, into your hybrids. And uh, um, I'll give you an example from a few years ago in a pit that we dug. Um, I don't remember exactly what brand or hybrid it was, uh, but we dug across three rows. And, uh, and this was in late July. And the root systems of, of the plants, uh, as they uh, came, out with, came out from the seed, um, they reached about eight inches away from the plant and stopped. And so on a 30-inch row system, there was a 14-inch gap in between those two root systems in, in the middle of the furrow or in between the two rows. Now, this particular farmer side dressed right down the center. Mm-hmm. And it took that pit to, uh, to, to make him make a management decision that I need to be putting a side dress fertilizer closer to the plant and not the middle of the row. Not something he probably would have seen without digging that hole. And so there's, there's management decisions that can be made based on, on your observations once you get below the soil surface. And compaction is probably the biggest one. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Mick, I know you like that wide drop system, and you brought that up as we were in that pit talking about it, that how that wide drop's going to deliver a lot of that fertility in the same place where you've got good root proliferation from where you dropped the fertility when you did your planting. Yes, and like Pat said, that particular hybrid that they dug up didn't even reach the center of those rows. You know, for years we were side dressing down the center of those rows. If we can get that dribble next to that plant within three inches of that plant with bounce, we, we'll do a better job. Well, that also plays a role in fertilizer efficiency. Yeah. You know, uh, fertilizer laying in that 14 inch gap, regardless of when it was applied or how it was applied, um, was going to have a minimal impact in that growing season. And, and I, like you, I, I want to clarify previous comments. Um, we're not ones who are going to promote um, lowering, uh, lowering your, your pounds per acre, especially when it comes to nitrogen. Um, I think there are some, some efficiencies to be gained with, with FOSS and potash and, and some of the trace elements, but still, in essence, going to take a pound in per bushel or a little more, and, and you start playing with nitrogen, you're, you're playing with fire. But some of the other stuff, there's, there's probably some efficiencies to be gained. It depends on a lot of different factors, and you can't make that blanket decision just because you decided to switch to a strip-till system. You better understand your whole farming practice and the environment that you're going into before you immediately say that, well, I can cut this or I can cut that. Tim really enjoys it when a farmer calls him and tells him he's got yellow corn, though. <laughs> he takes that as a challenge. There are definitely opportunities, though, that we can reduce nitrogen application and gain nitrogen efficiency within reason. I know Mick and I have talked about it many times. As you start getting below 0.7 pounds of nitrogen per bushel of corn, now you're matching crop removal. And if you're taking off more nitrogen uh, in the crop than in the grain and what you're putting into that system, you got to have some way that you're balancing that out. Now, maybe that's legume rotation. You know, certainly following alfalfa, there'd be some justification for that with applied nitrogen. But if you're doing that long term, especially corn on corn, you have to be lowering your organic matter, frankly. And that is not a sustainable practice long term. I mean, we've gotten ourselves in a, a bad position that way. And, and talking about strip I mean, that's one of the benefits it brings to the table. For So for some growers who are not comfortable with no-till, um, weed control, just uh, warmth the soil early in the season, maybe pr producing a good seed bed. Strip-till is kind of a nice, you know, I'll call it a halfway point, for lack of a better term, where you can get away from disturbing all the soil and, and mixing up that, uh, that organic matter, releasing carbon dioxide, creating issues with all your microorganisms, and instead just have a concentrated band where you produce a nice seed bed there, leave the rest of the ground alone. Well, there's a, there's a couple things that you, you touched on there that, uh, um, that, that fall right into the wheelhouse of some research that we've done over many, many years, and one is soil temperature. And uh, in essence, when you have a black strip, we all know that black absorbs heat. Um, but we've also uh, been able to prove over many trials that the residue in between those black strips is white, and white reflects heat. And that will also play a role in the strip. And we also know now that uh, um, because of the fracturing of the compaction and the mallowing of the soil, uh, and please understand I'm not taking shots at no-till here. I'm just describing our experiences. Um, 
We promote water, water infiltration. We promote temperature infiltration. And uh, I think it's, it's pretty well widely known that roots chase temperature. And the faster we can get temperature going down, the, the better we are. And water infiltration, maybe not so much here in the eastern part of Nebraska, but I can guarantee you uh, where everybody strip tells out in western Nebraska and western Kansas and eastern Colorado, that's a big deal. Uh, getting Mother Nature's water to go where it needs to go. And uh, so, and that's something that we've studied a lot. Uh, Cornell University many, many years ago innovated a tool called a Cornell water infiltrator. And uh, we've used that in comparison with no-till, strip-till, and conventional till over many, 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 many different plots and sites. And, and that's a, a big advantage of strip-till is, is the water infiltration rate increase. Um, there are countless customers that have told me, and including my own experiences at home, um, where, where we used to have uh, areas of the field that drowned out and we started strip-tilling and all of a sudden we're growing crops in those places. Well, what you did was you changed the water infiltration rate. Yeah. Water didn't stand anymore. You know, we talk about soil health and a lot of times we go to something like biological activity or the Haney test or something like that. You know, what's the micro balance in the soil? I like water infiltration and aggregate stability. It's probably my two favorite measurements for soil health because they're a good solid measurement. They're not as weather dependent. And if you can get w more water into that soil, you're going to get better yields for the most part. So. Well, and, and you hit the nail on the head when you, when you hit aggregate stability. Um, a lot of times when we try to deal with compaction uh, mechanically, we end up screwing up soil structure. And that, that is a negative effect on our water infiltration rates and our temperature infiltration rates. And so um, bad tillage is almost as detrimental as not dealing with it to begin with. And when I say bad tillage, that, that can be defined by a lot of things. It, uh, probably most predominantly is working the ground when it's too wet. Um, secondly is, is tools that are, are in an environment they shouldn't be in. Um, so uh, there, there is just so much that goes on below, below the surface of the soil that we need to pay attention to. And we're really starting to get a, finally, after 30 years looking at it, finally to get people convinced that uh, there, there's something, something to it. So um, it'll be interesting in the years to come that we're all in this, that we'll know more hopefully in five years from now. Um, but we're really, when we're talking about soil health, we're really on the cutting edge. So Pat, the, the one trip, we've talked about that quite a bit, but Dwarfman sells quite a few cultivators too, and uh, sounds like cultivator sales are actually up quite a bit. Help, help us understand that a little bit. Well, we, we all deal with the same problem, and that's herbicide-resistant weeds. It's different, er it's different weeds for different areas, um, but it is something that uh, uh, is growing year after year over the last five years especially. Our cultivator sales have increased pretty drastically um, year after year after year. Um, it's, it's coming back into favor for a couple of different reasons. Number one is herbicide-resistant weeds, and it's a management tool. And um, Throw the salesman hat on and say, I've yet to see a weed that's cultivator-resistant. Um, and the other, the other reason for the organic, or, uh, cultivator sales growing is the, is the growth in the organic market. And uh, the more organic acres there are, uh, the more acres that are getting cultivated. And so um, couple that with uh, uh, it's another opportunity to apply fertilizer at a later date. 
um, our, our sales are are growing, but it's predominantly driven by herbicide-resistant weeds. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I have never seen an iron-tolerant weed before, but my problem is I just can't find any iron-tolerant soybeans either. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is the problem of ironworm or colloidal blight or whatever you want to talk to, but that's a lot better now that we have guidance. Um, but we all remember the days uh, when we were younger and cultivation happened two, three times across every acre. And thankfully, we're not going to that amount of stupidity anymore. But um, it is playing a role. And maybe it's not to cultivate every acre, um, but maybe where you have some, some issues uh, that should rear their ugly head, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to go and do at least something about it. Um, I do like to mention that... Uh, um, Cultivation and weed control is very similar to herbicide weed control in that if you let them get out of hand, it's too late. Um, but it, it does play a role, and it's a pretty inexpensive role uh, in the grand scheme of things. It's not the only solution, um, but if you can develop a plan, it can be part of that plan, and it does work. You know, for our listeners who don't know, Orthman's in Lexington, Nebraska. And, of course, Lexington was kind of in that uh, heyday of furrow irrigation back when irrigation first came to Nebraska. So I, that's one one point with a lot of that equipment is it was built around ridgetail. Uh, still quite a few ridgetail people out there? Um, anywhere you have gravity irrigation, there's, there's tons of it in the front range of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of gravity irrigation up there. Um, they're still in the Platte Valley in Nebraska uh, quite a bit. Um, occasionally when we go to national shows, we, we hear bits and pieces of ridge till in the Eastern Corn Belt. Um, um, but predominantly, um, California, um, in the South, uh, anywhere where they're still using either irrigated pipe or, uh, canal through siphon tubes or, excuse me, actual flooding of the fields, uh, ridge still, still plays a predominant role. And another place we see it is in lowland and wet areas. I was going to say, sometimes it's the opposite. It's a nice way to get the feet dry on a young plant to let it get established before mm-hmm. it hits that wet soil in some of these areas that just don't drain very good. Now, we've made some big impact with that with tile drainage, but not every field works with tile drainage. And frankly, we're probably reaping some negative effects of that tile drainage with our hypoxia zone. And not all fields can take a tile drain when they sit lower than right, everything, the, around, everything it. around it. Yeah. So how are you going to get away with getting the water off? Yeah. Uh, sometimes that ridge still will help you with a high water table. There are some other advantages, you know, uh, in down corn. Um, if you've got a ridge, it's pretty easy to get your snoot underneath the plant. Uh, and, and that is helpful in that environment. But uh, um, it, it's not something we see often, but... Uh, there, there are still plenty of ridge tillers out there, um, and there's some validity, I, I guess. I'd like to see some research or do some research in, in regarding consistent fertilizer placement in that same spot over and over and over again and, and, and see some soil tests and, and, and uh, see if there's been any change to the positive in that environment. Um, but. I have yet, yet to find anybody that's done that research you know, yet. The problem with those, and you know it too, Mick, is okay, where's the right place to take a core when you got the fertilizer going in the same place all the time? And you start, get, you get your core there, and it's going to be really high, and you get your core somewhere else, and the level's going to be really low. low so. so making heads or tails of it gets to be a real issue. But cultivation is, is if our sales reflect um, uh, the way uh, the United States agriculture is heading and uh, agriculture overseas, 
cultivators are coming back in a big way. Now, uh, the equipment that Orthman sells, do they do fairly well in a uh, high residue environment like, you know, what's typically we'd call no-till. Now, obviously, we're bringing tillage into it, so it's not no-till anymore. But the the residue of a, uh, a limited um, seed uh, bed uh, building and, and with a lot of residue on it, those, those cultivators still work in that environment fairly well? So we have four different cultivation platforms that we make, and they're, they're pretty specific to their environment. Um, but I can tell you, um, one of the cultivators, uh, specifically the 8375, is designed for a high-residue environment. And I could take you to quite a few places that grow uh, 260 to 300 bushel corn pretty consistently in a strip-till environment, leaving everything untouched from last year's res- residue by moving 15 inches over and come in with an 8375 and cultivate in that environment. Is that a one-shovel system then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. All right, well, we've covered it fairly well. You got anything else, Mick? Not not off the top of my head. Uh, I guess I think of using that iron to get, get rid of weeds, and as long as we're using guidance in the same lines that we planted with, that we can be successful with that. It's when we start swapping tractors and and guidance systems that we've really run into some significant issues, right, Tim? Yeah, we get a little bit of cultivator blight every now and then as we try to use two different technologies and make them marry up. Yellow and green don't get along. (laughs) All right, well, thanks for being a guest today, Pat. Anytime. Thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate it. Mick Godigan, I'm Tim Undorf, and this has been Soil Talk. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our agronomy focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.